Welcome back to the Love is the Author podcast. I'm Lacey Dilmore, and I've missed you guys very much. Jamie is here with me, and today we have decided to do a format that we've kind of done before, um, where we ask each other a couple questions, but today we decided to do it in the format of past, present, and future, so asking each other a question about our past, the present, and the future, even though the only time we believe in is now. Um, hi, Jamie. Hi. So hey, nice, everyone. So nice to see you, even though I see you all the time. Um, so I will start by asking Jamie the three questions from past, present, and future. And so for past, who is someone from your past if they were listening now, would be surprised to know they had a powerful impact on your life. And of course, give us a little about what that impact was. It's a really great question. Um, And it's nice to know that I'm, uh, I'm in love with somebody who would come up with a question like that. Uh, God, I'm doing big us. Well, that's the thing with this format is we have to give each other some space to think about it. So just us are nice. Okay. Informs people you're still here. So everybody can put up with my uh. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's one person that immediately came to mind. So I guess, you know, the childlike mind I've heard is is the one that just goes with the first available thing. And the adult mind is the one that kind of, that starts to question it is like, Oh, is that good enough? Or, you know, and does all this analysis around, you know, and that's really based in like wanting to cater to who you think is listening. And I don't know who's listening, so I have nothing really to lose. So, um, when I was younger, I had there was two different sets of people who did this for me, and um, one of whom I've lost complete touch with. And uh, but anyway, I ran away from home when I was sixteen, and for the first time was homeless, and chose that for myself. And for a long period of time, it was sort of sleeping in parks or just you might get lucky and and make friends with somebody who was a little older who might take you in for an evening. But there was a couple and they were kind of a hippie couple and, uh, big deadheads, but also like really not your, not what at least in my mind a stereotypical deadhead is like. I mean, they kind of had a really well-rounded thing of kind of beat poetry and like, and I'm doing something with my hand right now to, it's so funny, but like as I'm saying things, I'm noticing my hand is like, like, like I'm turning something or something. But um, they took me in this couple, and they had a tiny, they had a, a daughter who was like three years old or something like that, and they took me in, and I had nothing to offer them at all besides being myself, which I don't even think was that great at the time. But you know, we can't see ourselves clearly. But they took me in and they gave me a place to stay 
and they would do that on my hours and not theirs. And it was this radical generosity, um, just a, a radical generosity of like, you're going to take in a 16-year-old who is in the throes of his pain, emotional pain. And where, did his, they, where did you meet the? Where did they come from? Where did these people come from? So this was in Sacramento, and so I, I just think that there was a park that everybody hung out at, like, you know, killing time during the day. And I just met this guy at a park and he was really tall and just a beautiful man with uh, blonde dreadlocks and uh, like a cool goatee. And his name is John. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that just came to me. God. You know, and uh, I can still see his wife, and they were like this really sweet, earnest. If you've ever seen like Grateful Dead couples, like throughout history, it just kind of looks like this, this love within a sea of sort of psychedelic freedom. Like the, they represented that, and they just took me in. And I remember, you know, I did nothing for them at all. And, uh, if anything, I brought weird hours to their life and, and just, I don't know, just, I needed so much and, and, and they took me in and took care of me and it would be sporadic. And, uh, but I, I never forgot that. I never forgot that kindness. And I eventually got off the street and i I moved from Sacramento back to my original hometown of Pasadena and and um got a place to live and and kind of started having a legit life around 18 and then you know I lost that apartment I got really into drugs and needed a place to stay again and I, this guy named Damon Aaron and he's a really great musician you could look up his music and he's a soulful uh, he does mixes electronic music and, but he's like a legit, uh, soulful, uh, uh, singer songwriter has been at it for ages and is tied in with the dust brothers as of more recent, but he and his, he had a little family situation also. And he, he was somebody, I don't know why these people took me in, but at two different times I can think about really clearly when I had nothing to offer and except for weird hours and and what whoever it was I was at the, these times, they they took me in for long periods of time. I remember too at the face just to talk about a humorous story. I was really into the riot girl movement. Like I I was really into feminism. Um, I was hanging out with uh, um, a lot of people who were influential in my life. Were really into like uh, uh, punk rock, but this offset of punk rock that was kind of the Riot Girl movement, which was, you know, uh, this this budding movement of women in music who were, you know, may not have held the same proficiency with an instrument that, you know, you know what you would expect, uh, you know, it was kind of garagey and, and, um, and raw, like Nirvana, um, just to, uh, to use a reference, but this riot girl movement was like, it was a, was a big movement in the nineties. Um, that was anyway, so I got involved with some riot girls 
and I always wanted to be in with them. I, I found that in my youth, I was always trying to like be in with something that was completely unattainable. Like I went to an all black, mostly all black, uh, junior high. And I, you know, and I got the experience of what it was like to be a minority. And then, you know, of course, um, you know, with the right girl movement, I'm obviously a guy and, uh, these girls kind of took me in, but they would, you know, they were unstable. And I remember living with Damon and his wife, Lynette, and, uh, they were growing a weed plant. Uh, and this is like 95, maybe, maybe 94. Um, and they were growing a weed plant on their porch. And I remember the riot girls were, were, uh, got upset at me for some reason. I didn't come hang out or there was something like they turned on me and they came looking for me. They followed me to where I was staying with Damon and they destroyed, they picked all the weed off of this plant that he had been growing for ages. So all I really brought was destruction and and yet they let me live with them and this kindness is still with me today this this thing of like reaching out and giving a part of that back um the kindness that was extended to me for no discernible reason i mean just with nothing at all to offer you know and um that's something that you know i i guess on some level i'm i was influenced by you know that's meaningful wonderful Lynette and Damon and John. Yeah. And you don't know the woman's name? John's, John's wife? John's wife. I don't remember her name. No. But uh, Damon's wife is Lynette, and they have two children now. And I stay in contact with them a bit. So present, what is a hurdle you are currently facing in your development? Whether it's spiritual development, human being development, physical development, physical development. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Uh I I feel like I'm struggling um these days I'm struggling with the basically like I you know there's a quandary of of feeling like in this moment and in the most recent moments that there's something to bring in from the outside. There's something to harness and, and bring in. And, and yet uh, what's becoming abundantly clear in the last little bit of time, the best I have to, to, to meet the the feeling or the the can the you need. Can you give an example of what's bringing something in? It's so ambiguous, and I were too truth telling to be that ambiguous. So like an example, just an example of what that means. I guess what success, you know, what who I'm supposed to be now post a treatment career, um, what the the goal is to sink my teeth into um, who I am to be, what I am to do next, what's to, to provide stability for um, our children, um, you know, doing that independently. I've faced the independent artist thing so many times in my life. I'm wanting to do it. I feel like I've been given this opportunity to do this now. 
uh, in, a, in a different state of consciousness than any before. And so there's this nagging urge to connect with something that's outside of me to bring that in. Like, where is that on this planet? And how do I, and do, who do I meet? And there's always been this emphasis on, 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 I, I let motorcycles go by sometimes just to not compete. Uh, so that's what that was, that pause. But, you know, I, I, um, I've uh, I've put placed an importance on meeting the right people and uh being in the right place at the right time and it was a fabrication most of my in my early spiritual development it was it was uh really not living up to what I was reading and what I was being taught um I always have felt like there was somebody outside of me that was going to change my life and waiting for that gatekeeper and there are those old notions of that here now with me that that you know um that there's somebody who holds more power than i have that uh if i put myself out there enough i'll meet and who will thrust me into some grand new opportunity um and uh and the the conflict that i'm in right now is you know i keep getting messages of uh you know, and you're somebody that just tells me this, you know, well, I remember I've been focusing on, uh, you know, on this, this celebrity that lives in town because I'm a huge fan of them. And, and, uh, you know, I'll just say who it is. It's Jason Siegel. And, and we moved here and we started seeing him around and I had this idea that I was going to be friends with him. <laughs> just this, like, you know, and and people who know me in my life know that probably wouldn't count me out of that. You know, uh, kind of a setting my mind to something and then seeing it come to fruition. <clears throat> but in the few interactions, in the few times that I have crossed paths with Jason, actually held held some semblance of a conversation. You know, um, it's not to say that he's not the coolest motherfucker. It's not to say that that he's not somebody that I just appreciate as an artist, but Lacey was always really quick to say he's not cooler than you, you know. And there's this power that it seems to, he seems to have because he's he's you know there's this allure to the kind of world that he's in and my fascination with that world um, of you know being able to share what you create with a wide variety of people and you know and Lacey just tells me like I don't know why you're always looking for someone outside of you to do that like it's it's you know you're you're it you know and I struggle with that I mean I I I struggle um back and forth with that you know and I think that it is a lot of the conditioning that I've, uh, the, you know, I'm still involved in looking at a rectangle every day that gives me information outside of the moment that gives me information outside of the household and my own life of other people's lives. And though I see that as less important than ever before in my life, it is kind of reinforcing this, 
this aspect that there's something to take in from outside of you and there's a there's a power that's that's outside of your household that that you can connect with too and that it's not the truth that's just not the truth the truth is that in this moment you know i am a part of everything and so i've i'm a part of the same power and the same ingredients and the same consciousness and the same you know elements that all existence um, holds and science says that and spirituality says that and the two kind of meet there and so i'm i'm uh lately i've been instead of petitioning a higher power instead of sort of you know taking the humble route and sort of asking to to do the higher power's will i've been praying from the point of view of being the higher power and swimming in a sea of the higher power and uh you know in all the faces and all the places that that it is just an extension of myself i'm an extension of it and sort of rather than asking to do anything i i set an intention in the morning with my prayer to 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 know that i'm it and to use the creative imaginative power of um, the life force energy in all things you know to bring about whatever my mind focuses on i just get right with like that whatever my mind focuses on today i'm going to bring in rather than asking or waiting for a handout wonderful well i feel like it's interesting how you answer that because I feel like my question about the future, I don't know. It feels like it ties in. So I hope it makes sense. The question is, do you see yourself going more in terms of being a helper? Do you see yourself going more into the world you know, with consideration of the world and your own life or the community at large and your own personal life, do you see yourself going more into the world, into the community, or do you see it coming more to you? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. It's another, it's a really great question. It's a very, it's a, one of those questions that, uh, yeah, just feels like I don't have an answer right at the start. Um, it catches me off guard, and those are really great questions. Uh, so do I feel like the community is going to come more to me or that I'm going to be more in the community? You're going to have to, yeah, go more out into the community. Well... You and I know because we've had some discussions as of late, like my feeling is is that I've been out in the community for a long time. I've been highly accessible. Um, I've remained accessible to those that I've worked with, even against uh, what would be considered uh, ethical, uh, just in the way of if you work with someone in treatment, 
um, you are to confine your relationship to that treatment experience and not have any outside interactions for a couple of years. And that's, that's a standard for clinicians and it's largely guided by, I think the BBS, I'm, uh, you know, which is the board of behavioral sciences. Yeah, you can't have a personal relationship with them, like a intimate, yeah, personal int- relationship with them. Right. So you can't have a personal relationship, but I have, I have and and it's been an act of rebellion in a hopefully crumbling archaic model of how we are to treat mental health and addiction and so i've just kind of said well i'm not doing that and i will hold it up um you know there's certain things that i wouldn't do like going to somebody's house or something like that but i've maintained connection i've maintained friendships and uh and mentoring um anyway so i've been out there in the world and been really out there and and i'm now for the future what it looks like is is sort of like uh i feel like the people that I look to the most are highly potent, mainly because they aren't as accessible. They aren't as as uh, as easy to run into, or you know, what is it this mystique that I have with with you know artists? And uh, well, it's mainly because I, you know, I would love to ask them certain things, or I just don't have direct interaction with them other than their art. And it leaves this space for wonder and it leaves this space for curiosity and, and all of which, if you ever do come into contact with, you know, someone who you appreciate their, what they do, you know, it can, uh, well, there's just a, there's a real disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it can be really disappointing and it can live up to everything. Right. You know, I remember meeting, Ben Harper, I met him twice, musician Ben Harper, and early on in his career. And I remember everything that his music sounded like, he he acted towards me. And I just, that was really influential. Also, to tie back to your first... Which was positive. Yes. People don't know that you think his music is good, so... Yeah, I love his music, and he, and his message seemed incredibly righteous and sacred without you know and spiritual without being religious and and kind and talking about the best parts of humanity and highlighting that and doing so with a if you haven't heard fight for your mind i would highly recommend listening to it you can find it anywhere um but um yeah so just there's a thing about potency that i feel like if I feel like the future, rather than being more out in the world directly, that uh, I think I imagine the world coming more toward taking an interest in my direction from the outside. Um, and I don't know how that's going to go, but I am really interested in, you know, I, part of it is physi- physiological, like this work over time i'm seeing just i've had the the grace of having some time away from uh the saturation of constant um you know work with people um 
on a daily basis in the treatment world. And that felt like just a, an ocean. You're just in this ocean of constant giving. And being out of that now, you know, I can really see the kind of bodily toll that it takes, the exhaustion that it takes on, you know, and uh, how much energy is involved with be active, being an active listener and, and processing along with the person that you're sitting with. So all of that said, you know, I'm really wanting now to preserve uh, my creativity, preserve my body's energy. And, and so that's a major interest and in how to go about that. Like, you know, it's all an experiment and it's a good time to do that. I think we're all in a great time for experimentation of, uh, doing something other than the way that, that, uh, we've, the mold we've created for ourselves, um, or the mold that, that was shaped by others, you know? So I'm taking that opportunity to figure that out. But, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I'll share with you my, my dream is to, to be somebody that can speak to large groups and, and, um, rather than seeing each individual speaking to large groups and, uh, that would be really, really great. That's what's on hopefully the horizon for me is taking a show on the road, perhaps, you know, when, when it's appropriate to do so, like a, like a really cool spiritually based artistic road show, you know, with music, like great music and, and, you know, and great talks and, uh, some kind of circus like that. I think it'd be really cool. Well, and does, and that kind of mixes you're going out into the world yet, yet people are coming to you and you can have some sense of control over how much you, you are going out into the world when you want to turn on and when you want to turn off, even though I know essentially you and I are always on, on some level because we're just always ourselves as much as possible. But that idea of, of speaking to large groups of people, it's like you're going into the world, yet you're tending to a lot of people at once. And so, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, am I making... <sighs> yeah, you're making perfect sense. And that's right. And that's right. And yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that wants to still be a musician, but not have an instrument still be like a a touring musician well and there's some boundary when it's not so intimate one-on-one when it's like you and then a group it's like kind of less intimate and so that can that can create some boundary emotionally when you're with a large group you know even though you're with a large group it's kind of less toll-taking than being one-on-one all the time right well, thank you for all of that, and I don't know how beneficial that is for any of the listeners, but I appreciate being asked, and I appreciate you listening. And now I'm, now I'm going to ask Lacey her past, present, and future questions. And the first one is about your past, and it has to do with dating um, an active alcoholic and addict. 
and which is a part of your history. Uh, when you dated someone years ago, and it was a, a, a really, really, from what I understand, a, a sort of as reckless as it gets in your life. And I will wonder if you can tell the story of what it was like, you know, for our listeners, a lot of them have struggled with addiction and to hear, you know, the, the side of the person who is dating someone with the problem and, and, and what it was like for you and how you grew from that. Um, and also what areas that, that spun you out to where you had to find yourself. God, it made me emotional when you started asking me about this. Um, It's not a time of my life I've talked about very much because it was short but also very long in that the actual dating time was fairly short, but it was like this push and pull for a couple years. Um. The drinking was a surprise. It wasn't there in the beginning, um, but it quickly emerged. And I was young. Who's drinking? My boyfriend at the time. And I was really young. And, you know, in reflection, I was in my own alcoholism, but with an eating disorder. Like, I was still very much trapped in that. But I didn't, I didn't really know that at the time, I think. Um, so I'm sure our, our um, I don't even want to say illnesses, but our internal conflicts were, com- were competing with each other, essentially. Um, but it was a really, uh, it was a really lonely time. It was a relationship that my friends and family kind of really weren't, I don't know. They didn't ask me about it a lot. I was gone a lot. How old were you at this time? I was 22, I think. Was he your age? No, he was like 20, maybe eight, I think. Really, really smart. Like um, left brain smart, like brilliant science, wanted to be an internal medicine doctor or and deal with infectious disease and like his walls looked like uh, a beautiful mind where there'd just be like these insane math equations and like literally. And so right there is kind of for, to me now highlights like we just are, what was meaningful to us in life was very different. I'm just like an artist and I don't care about any like left brain stuff is I'm just not dominant left brain. So And I think there was a lot of love and it happened very quickly and there was a lot of passion. And I think, you know, I want to say that I think that that freaked him out and that that supported the drinking because he he was feeling some emotions and a connection to somebody and that didn't bode well for his left brain and so I think there was a conflict there um and I asked you something about it what initially what attracted you what was like the most 
important thing that attracted you through finding out that he had an alcohol, a problem with alcohol, what at that stage superseded your desire to move back, to back away? Um, I think I was initially really surprised that he was interested in me. I was just so, my confidence was so low and I thought he was really attractive and cool and older. We also, when we started dating, like it was a very, like we flew to Washington with our friend and like did a road trip and then did another like 24 hour road trip to like Texas. We did all this like crazy stuff that I, I was an introvert. Like I didn't do anything like that. And so he showed me this part of myself that could do like be an adventure. So that was really attractive to me. I was kind of like, I was inspired by him and I'm, I'm forever. I've always told myself I'm forever grateful for that, that he like pushed me to kind of just be erratic on some level and even the drinking, like, was fun a lot of the time. To just, like, go out and get fucked up. But when it was, like, drinking whiskey in the morning <laughs> and going to Ralph's and stealing food from Ralph's, like, I was like, this is lame. But uh, it, it wasn't anything. It was my low sense of self, you know. I was just really primed to to fall for anything that was falling for me, even if there was... Um, erratic behavior but it's like it's the like cliche like when it was good it was really good and when it was bad it was bad and uh when he would text me you know we hadn't talked in five months I was still single lonely and very much in my own um depression and eating disorder that I was just really vulnerable can I ask you how 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 did it end i mean how did you you know because it was it sounds like there's what would be classically defined as like codependency going on and so how did you how did you move away from that dynamic how, how did it end i mean um it ended and well I um we were supposed to go on a trip together the day before the trip he called me very straightforward said I'm not going with you I'm going snowboarding with my friends we didn't talk for maybe a year after that he emailed me and apologized and then we went a little bit back and forth and then and for me in my heart it really ended honestly when I got into another relationship with somebody who really valued me and he had texted the ex had texted me and normally I would of course go back into it and I never texted or emailed back okay and growing so value in myself is how it ended I guess just growing value in myself and yeah well and finding purpose in my life right and so what are there any lasting imprints of that relationship and that dynamic in how you see the world now? I mean, and maybe not even all beneficial, like are there, is there some shadows from that that find their way into, I mean, I guess this relationship or any of your relationships? 
um, not really any negatives. I mean, I think I'm still, there's like some hurt, but I think more so I'm hurt for who, how, who I, how I was just missing out on, um, probably a lot of like red flags and, you know, how I was just very blind and I was just in my own hurt, which allowed me to be hurt. And I just like put up with some of it. And sometimes I didn't, but I think the imprint is just that like, uh, I feel very protective of, of women when I work with young women and I feel like they're hurt themselves. And so they're missing how um, inappropriately they're being treated. Well, was it around this time that you got into working in addiction treatment? Wasn't it right around that time or was it a little yeah, after? We met, at, we met at my first job in treatment and yeah. And I, so he worked there. Yes. And and I saw our differences there where he just like was not very nice to the clients. And I was just like running around like loving every interaction with every client. We just dealt with it very differently. And, and, uh, but my purpose certainly served me well to, to build boundaries ongoing because I saw my value outside of being in a relationship. Well, what's extraordinary about the story actually is the care of the universe to, as you enter into that, you know, that world of of addiction and mental health to work with, I mean, to, to date and to love someone who struggled so acutely with those issues, you know, a relationship born out of being a helper in that center along with this person, right? He was a helper too. Was he like a, did he work, he worked there? Yeah. All right. You weren't dating a client. Oh, no. <laughs> right. Oh, no. I right. wasn't. Yeah, he was, he worked there. Yeah. And so to start out. I got caught out, up in the word helper. I was like, meh, I don't know about that. But, right. <laughs> but yeah. To, but to start your career, having experienced the agony of what that's like, the well-rounded agony of it, you know, um, and how it can affect the family and how it can affect the uh you know, um, you just saw a complex view of it early on, and that really just started your whole career into this world that you're now licensed and and you know you have um, notoriety from. You know, yeah. Um, it's, it seems like the care of the universe to give it to you that early on. You know, to to give your allow your experience to be comprehensive. So. For the present question, and this is sort of another role question, um, you know, there's been so much emphasis in the last year, I feel like, and it could be longer, but I've watched your experience be one who's in touch with the plight of of um, the importance of the role of mothering uh, the role of uh, the traditional female role in the household, which is certainly 
being reevaluated and recontextualized and reshaped as it should. Um, but this, there's this, uh, most women who are in the position of raising children and are, um, the dominant, uh, are the dominant, um, Caretakers, nurturers? Yeah, care. Yes, yes. Um, they undervalue themselves and the work that they're doing as holding any sort of um, allure or the, all the things that we see on TV, people accomplishing things, success, what, how it's measured. Um, women are quick to to undervalue themselves as that being something important. You've been really in touch with that for a while, you know, and from a, from an outside perspective, you know, maybe, maybe some hints of it from just, you know, when the kids are here and seeing how much work it goes into, Yeah, you know, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I don't want to minimize that. I've, I, I don't want to act like I'm a full-time mom, but I don't want to minimize that a lot of this has come from my moments with children, two of which are very easy, <laughs> relatively speaking, easy children. But um, what do you want to... Yeah, or- you know, and so 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 that's been something that you've been... You've talked mostly to me about... I mean, we've had a lot of conversations about that that particular um, aspect of, of uh, you know, the importance or the questioning importance around that. So, you know, now we've kind of been in this pocket of time where, you know, um, you know, I like you've come into contact with that even more and uh, having to sort of self-narrate um, each moment is having as holding importance where you're not doing what the world sees as a successful moment is not cooking a meal necessarily to its full, you know, right. from start to finish right. and all that. And you've been in that role now uh, in this pocket of time, these last few months that has become, and I just want to talk about, or you to talk about how in the present, you know, how that's, what your take is on that now? Um, so I, f- well, so I feel like the question is about the undervaluing of the daily maintenance of life that I see, I, you know, uh, Mothers are a very easy one, but I kind of see everybody in it, whether they're a parent or not. I've been extremely surprised at how being unemployed, um, it's still difficult to get everything done in a day. And I have full days. All the while trying to tend to myself which still is not the majority of my day um but you know it's so like hit the the self-care is so hip right now and it should be because I'm also seeing the value in that um but what does it mean to get a good night's sleep 
wake up, maybe tend to yourself for 20 minutes, which is nothing. And then the rest of the day is likely a job until five o'clock and then coming home and serving if you have a family um, or it's going to school. If you're in your 20s, you're in night classes. Um, so this is a obviously like a systemic issue, an institutional issue, a cultural issue. Um, and I can be quick to get upset at the culture for, let's just talk about mothers for the undervaluing of motherhood, which is, is one that's been really pissing me off lately. I just think that I have a friend who's pregnant right now, which I don't have a friend who's pregnant. I have a friend who's making a human being in her body. And I just think that she should fucking be able to chill the fuck out and kind of not do much for nine months. Yet she's still trying to find meaning and purpose, make money, help support her family. And, um, and and yeah, since I haven't been employed, I've been supporting my family in that I'm just taking care taking care of things just for the day to keep going, the dog to be walked, the meals to be cooked, the kids to be um happy, ongoingly surprised by their life, you know, and uh and over time, there is not, there just isn't a lot of applause for cooking dinner or doing grocery shopping three times a week or walking the dog. Yet I see, I so see how much it is supportive of, you know, Jamie being able to flourish in his, his efforts of, of being a helper and, you know, and all the while I'm still looking for employment and building my private practice. So it's a cultural issue that I can get really, I can be really quick to get upset about, but I also see everything in in its perfection. And I see that it's pushing me to communicate more about the challenge. It's, it's, it's putting me in a position to ask for help. It's putting, I think, you know, it's obviously put women in a position to share what's really going on as a woman and as a nurturer. Yet I see women as better nurturers. (laughs) Unfortunately, most of the time than men, I have a lot of men in my life who are fucking phenomenal fathers and like equally attentive to their children. So I don't want to make it too gender specific, but Um, so I see it all in its perfection and I see the need for change and, uh, you know, it's for me, I really see that it's pushing me into places that I've, I need to be pushed into, which is like, just say, just communicating about it. Like I even wrote that in my journal or whatever I want to call it. Like today I was like, my mood has been decent, but there's been a few slips, but, but what's been nice about the, any low mood is the communication that I've had 
about it with Jamie, you know, and um, I'm really proud of the way that I see the world. I'm really proud of where I see the conflict and how I don't make it the enemy, yet I see where I essentially, the agent of change that I believe in most is for me to continue to do my own work on myself and support others in doing that too and that's that's my act of social justice and and if it's going to be bigger one day then then so be it but for now I feel I feel like I'm I'm doing good work even in just recognizing the disparity so I hope that was a good answer yeah it was great um the power of uh time with being in touch and you're in touch with something and it's been growing and now you're sort of you're you're in it more than you've ever been and it's it's not a concept outside of the household as much as it is a concept of your everyday life and I, i i think it's a really interesting unfolding how being in touch with something and then time really gives you this you know you get to get your hands dirty with it and figure things out and you know you uh yeah and recycle some you know woman i was listening to the other day i forget her name oh sarah blondin or something like that um a client referred her to me and she was talking about like and I've always said, like, it's good to use your pain to help others, but she's called it recycling your pain. So it's like, essentially, I'm going to use what the disparity I'm seeing in, like, my the women in my life not being celebrated for their motherhood as a way to help mothers that I work with and or fathers that I work with or what, you know, whatever. Right, right. So, and then for the future question, and this will wrap the podcast uh the future question is with you having gone through all the proper channels of schooling and licensure to become a licensed marriage and family therapist and that's what you are right yes okay cool yeah so (laughs) um with having gone through all those proper channels all the time invested in it the testing the hard-earned accomplishment of being licensed, uh, having worked in a variety of treatment centers, all varying in their degree of clinical uh, presence and sterility, um, and now being independent, also seeing the role that psychedelics are starting to play in uh, in working in treating mental health and addiction, all of the information that you've been gathering, all of your direct experience and what you've, uh, what you're, what you're seeing the need is in the world. Where do you think the future of therapy lies like true therapy, you know? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, like what do we what do we need what do we need that we're not getting predominantly right maybe just at the very least like you could say what is it that we need that that we're that we're denying therapists 
So that woman that I just mentioned in the same, it was like a meditation she did. She said, we're, we're learning more how to cope with life rather than live it. And I think there's a, there's a kind of a instructional way of therapy where we're, we're, were kind of helping people cope with life or accept life and like I'm very interested in helping people live life and um just be with it in every way possible that you know if there's depression be with depression and not get be too quick to fix the depression or figure it out it's just like being with it merging with it and of course you know and and the great thing about therapy that if somebody's in severe danger there's elements to the the um education that I can I really know how to keep somebody safe quickly and that and there's ongoing respect for that um no matter what kind of helper I choose to be I'm gonna have some education that's going to support me and just keeping my clients safe which is obviously the most important but once they're safe I'm really interested in people understanding what living really means and that living doesn't mean success and constant success and constant joy Um, but it's riding the waves of some joy, some success, some no joy, some no success. Why would somebody want to, why would you suggest someone sit with depression and not do something about it? Like what, what is there to be gained from, from that? Understanding of self and other, you know, it's like, if I understand my pain, I understand other people's and therefore I'll just be kinder to them. I mean, on the most basic level, but that's just like the most important thing to me. And, you know, with the the therapeutic process, like there's been so many, I mean, I say this and like, I don't really know, but I do know because I've heard it from a million people in the profession. There's been a lot of studies that talk about the most valuable thing in therapy is the therapeutic relationship. And that relationship really happens really quickly whether it's a positive relationship or or not, and whether the relationship's going to support the therapeutic process or not happens very quickly when the relationship starts, but that it's really about the relationship. And that's the thing that I need, I think needs some readdressing. I think that um, we can push the boundaries a little more with our therapeutic relationship, yet at the same time, you know, like Jamie and I pointed out, or Jamie pointed out, there's an emotional toll that intimacy takes with another human being. And so the boundaries are really important. And so I'm dancing with that right now. And it's been scary, but I feel like I'm doing it for everything needs an update, you know, like old, old instruction pamphlets 
you know, aren't going to work for the new version of the new stereo or whatever. It needs a new, the pamphlet, instruction pamphlet needs a new update. And so that's just what I'm interested in doing. And this is a big, big topic that I could go on and on and on about. And of course, there's psychedelic therapy. And I think the most important thing about psychedelic therapy quickly is that people become essentially their own therapist with the support of mother nature um and and any therapist involved is really just there on the sidelines to if anything gets out of control which is pretty rare um but people really get to have a deep experience of something deeper affirmed for them and they really come up with some amazing insights on their own but I think that the therapeutic process without psychedelic support should be like that anyway I'm really interested in guiding my clients to figure out their shit on their own because I don't want there to be a dependency on me and so I'd love to work with somebody for 20 years but I don't think that that would be ethical for me to work with somebody long term well and the truth is that you know if you're not setting someone up for dependency, then they may not need you. And that's how going into private practice, you know, the kind of the, the, the modality and the, the ethics involved in how you and I work with people is basically it's a system set up to put us out of business, which is which I happen to enjoy because I, I, I've often said like, I, if I go out of business because people are getting well, then so be it, you know, I'll find something else to do. Um, there's this in with what Jamie's saying, there's this thing that I read one time from this, this book and we can put it somewhere on our up I'll, I'll put it on my instagram or something but it's basically that people come to the practitioner the client comes to the practitioner for the truth and we shouldn't sit a, sit around and wait to give the person coming for the truth the truth you give them the truth when the truth emerges and so i do that fairly quickly and i think jamie does too and i don't feel like people need to earn it if they're coming to you, they're come. They've been brought to you by the universe, and they want the truth because it'll truly, it really will set them free. Well, I give the grocery store clerk the truth in five <laughs> right, minutes. Exactly. Like I'm, I'm not holding anything back from a client in their first session or their last, or I don't know, you know. But I do want to encourage you to if you're in this line of work where there's an exchange to just do everything possible without thinking of of how this is going to sustain your business, like do everything possible to treat the person with what they need without thinking about how it's going to keep you around in their life, you know, and in doing that, I've been freed. I've just been freed every single time. And you know, your worst fears about yourself don't seem to come true when you're bathed in altruism you know so this has been really great a really lovely check-in thank you Lacey. thanks love thank you i love you and we love you all out there and that's not just words to us we really love you and appreciate you listening 
this year and um, more to come. Certainly. Where can they find you, Jamie? Where can the kids find you? Um, I'm at <laughs> on Instagram at love is the author. And Lacey, where can they find you? On Instagram at Unconventional Gardener. And I swear I'm really working on that website. More to come. We'll check in with Lacey later about the website. But thank you all. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. If we don't put out another one of these before then, we're grateful for you. Bye.